Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Well, hello and welcome to Soho Radio's Composers on Film. I'm your host, Gemma Dempsey, and I'm delighted to be joined today by composer Rob Lord. I'm in Ramsgate. Rob's along the coast in Brighton. So, Rob, we may have a problem with stereophonic seagulls, I think, today. <laughs> we might do. Yeah, they're a bit of a plague, actually, for the, in terms of sound. Well, it's, it's July, and for, for those of you listening who are not familiar with the coast. July is when the seagulls get very busy. The chicks arrive and it's very territorial. So uh, if you have one nesting on your roof, as my friend Helen in Deal does, it ain't fun. She can't even get into the garden. But anyway, we we started today's show with one of my all-time favourite musical heroes, David Bowie. And I know from reading a bit about you, Rob, that you were a long-time fan, so much so that you actually had a band inspired by Bowie. So now I want you to sort of set this up for me. Were you dressed like Bowie, sound like Bowie. How far did this inspiration go? The truth is, with that band, that was a band called Oscar Kokoschka. I was in many bands. I've played in many, many bands over the years. Um, but um, Oscar Kokoschka was a kind of art rock ensemble, I would call it. And we just happened to have a singer who who was quite a lot like, that sounded a lot like David Bowie and looked quite a lot like him. But um, And we all loved David Bowie. It wasn't that we deliberately tried to, to copy him. But, um, but I mean, for instance, the track that you opened the show with, um, I chose that track. I mean, I, you know, I just love, I love David Bowie. I really do, as, as you do, um, and any sane person does. Um, but, but that track, I mean, that album in particular, I, I remember specifically when I heard that, that album for the first time in 1981. Um, and I was at a party and somebody put it on and it, it just, it's it's a cliche, but it, it blew my mind. I had this kind of epiphany where I just thought um, it just everything sort of connected at, at one moment, and that discordance from Robert Fripp and the sounds that they were using, the experimental sound and those Japanese voices and the reverse, the dog barks that are in there as percussion, you know, the whole thing. I just could not believe it. I I loved it instantly, and and I still love it. I mean, you know, I I love almost everything that he's done. I mean, I'll, I'll argue for tonight or never let me down. You know, I'll happily even support those, those records. But, um, but, you know, but that album particularly, when I heard it, it really made a, a big impact on me. And, um, and I guess that's something that, um, you know, I still appreciate now. I mean, it, it, it shows you that discordant, discordant experimental sound has a place in, in music. Um, and uh, so, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, I mean, how horribly sad that we we lost him um and he he managed to kind of you know as the ultimate artist kind of neatly tie up his artistic life by finishing his album inspired by his own kind of illness and death in a, in a very uplifting way i mean it's a great album isn't it and um you know black star he got that finished and died so uh, yeah there there we are it's 
It's interesting that you, when you talk about hearing this track for the first time and how much you were blown away by it, and you refer to the sounds. And when I was reading your bio, you talk about how from a very young age you were really interested in sound. And I thought it was interesting that you said sound rather than music in the first instance. And did you did you sort of differentiate when you were a young kid or was it all kind of part of this really interesting audio world that you were interested in? Well, it it really started with sound, I would say, um, because, you know, I had no musical training. Um, and um, so after a period of, um, of of just being obsessed, but not actually owning anything to make any music with, um, I had an, an awful lot of leaflets. You know, I used to go to music shops, I collect leaflets and I just stare in windows and and uh, really obsessively for quite a long time. Um, and, um, and then finally my parents took pity and they probably just got fed up and um, bought me this little plastic synthesizer called a wasp um which was which was cheap um but actually a real you know a real synthesizer with two oscillators and filters and uh, modulation and, and all these things um and then i spent um probably about the next year just you know in my room um making these little strange kind of distorted distorted by accident because i was recording into the the mic inputs of a high of a an old hi-fi system but um but it sounded great and um i would just make tapes of odd sounds and then i'd listen back to them and just think that's the coolest thing i've ever heard in my life um and uh, <laughs> you know and then i kind of graduated to playing along to records with my little kind of keyboard um and and then you know from there into bands and eventually to the point of just rehearsing 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 for for so long you know sometimes if you're in a really committed band and and you have the facility to do it you know in those days it was easier for people to make music and still have some kind of income um then um you know we just rehearsed and gigged so much uh it's a it's a great way it's another way to learn you know there are so many ways into music aren't there but um but that's that's one way and uh, you certainly get used to working in an ensemble listening to other people you know an awareness of how things connect the various instruments and things connect um and it's like being in a really weedy gang as well which is quite good fun <laughs> and being a collaborator you know i mean that's clearly is something that as a composer you need to listen to quite a few people when you're working on a film or, or working on a video game or whatever it is that there are people you need to to work with it's not just about you solo i think some people think oh it's and you know a lot of your work is done in solitude but you have to take into appreciation a lot of other people's you know desires and and creative input yeah yeah no i think that's that's very true i mean i I'd, I'd had a, an early taste of that um i uh, where i grew up i'd kind of joined um i'd enjoyed drama at school and i i joined a couple of youth theaters there um and then there was an opportunity to work with a, a director who who was a cambridge graduate and he'd come to coventry god help him and um and he was working with these young people and uh, and i worked with him he was the first director that i i worked with lovely guy called Ivor benjamin um and um and that was you know that was a great kind of early intro into this idea of collaborating working with a director um i didn't do it again for for many years but um but it was you know it was a taste of what what you might do and uh, yeah that's that's certainly the case i mean part of the um i guess part of the 
the job of a composer uh, is to, you know, you're looking for your way into a project um, conceptually, um, and and hopefully, you know, it's it's finding a way to inspire the directors and the producers uh, and get them on board with your vision for you know for what you feel the music might might be i mean sometimes people come to you and they've got a very strong idea you know that's a different thing but but um, there can be an opportunity especially if you can get in early into a project to find your the thing that excites you and then try and share that excitement and uh, you know convey that to the people who are working on the film mm. Well, let's listen to the next track that you've chosen, because as is the format for the show, we listen to songs that you love or have been inspired by. And I love the fact you chose Daniel Johnson, who I am familiar with. And again, it sort of speaks to what you were talking about earlier, uh, somebody who's self-taught and was trying a lot of different things and has a wonderful sort of uh, innocence about him, I think, in the way he writes, but writes really strong songs. And they refer to him as being an outsider. And yet, you know, Kurt Cobain, Zola Jesus, um, Tom Waits, you know, all were huge huge fans but I'd never heard Casper the Friendly Ghost which is the one you've chosen he's great isn't he you know um I, I mean he's he's absolutely for real you know there's there's no faking it and uh and the to illustrate that uh the reason I picked this particular track I mean there are so many great tracks and if you haven't if people haven't heard Daniel Johnson do give him a listen because there's just so much music he was so prolific and uh, so many amazing heartfelt things but um but the story behind this song is that um he was, you know, he had various mental health issues and um, he happened to be flying in a, in a single prop aircraft with his dad who had a pilot's licence um, somewhere in the US and they were, they were flying across, you know, one of those places where it's just never-ending forest. You just see trees for as far as the eye can see, even from an aeroplane. And um, at one point he became convinced that he, Daniel Johnson became convinced he was Casper the Friendly Ghost um, and he, he he took the ignition key from the from this little aeroplane and he threw it out the window. He threw it out the window. Oh god! And you know they crashed. They crash landed in the forest um, and uh, and and survive. Obviously, you know they survived injured. You know, but <laughs> goodness. So uh, anyway, that's that's the story behind this this song. All right. Well, let's hear it. The coyote goes. Smiling through his own personal hell Dropped his last dime in a wishing well But he was hoping too close and then he fell Now he's Casper the Friendly Ghost That's, that's awesome and I, I heard, I think I read an article in Rolling Stone about him where he described himself as a way out teddy bear which I thought was a really, a really lovely image. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then... Quite a different uh, style. We're going into the next one by Harold Budd and Brian Eno, uh, A Stream with Bright Fish. And I wonder, did, is this a track that appealed to your production sensibilities? Or Yeah, uh, well, yeah. And, um, I mean, this is from an album called The Pearl. Um, I mean, I suppose, first of all, you know, Brian Eno... Uh, is such an incredible influence on so many people and certainly me, you know, his use of sound and production techniques. Um, 
I mean, you know, albums like My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, obviously his work with Talking Heads, Roxy Music, his own work, his own songs even. But um, but this particular album um, he recorded with Harold Bird. I think what's being done here is that lots of things have been recorded. If you take a multi-track tape recorder, um, speed it up, record lots of high playing, let's say pianos, and then then slow it down as low as, as, low as it will go. You get this incredible soundscape that instantly kind of appears. Um, um, and I think that's I think that's probably what's being done along with various other things with with this particular album. Um, but the this one I I used to listen to this album when I first moved to London. Um, I got a job at a music shop called Argents, which sold synthesizers and things in Denmark Street, and. Um, I, I was kind of sleeping on someone's floor. They really didn't want me there. It was terrible. So I would, I would, I mean, you know, you're, you're young, you don't realise, you know, and um, so I would just try and stay out as late as possible every day, um, probably go to the pub or something. And, um, and then I'd come back and I'd have to wait up with these people until they finally went to sleep. And then I'd go to sleep on the floor and I'd put this album on. And I mean, it is just a great album to drift away to. It's so, so beautiful. Um, and uh, yeah, and sounds absolutely amazing. And I, I read somewhere that um, Harold Budd, I believe he grew up or spent a lot of time in the Mojave Desert. And I think you can hear that in his music. I, I, I mean, as you said, it's soundscape. It really just envelops you. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I highly recommend that album. It, the whole thing's just brilliant. It, uh, it's so beautiful, it really is. And I mean, he's an amazing... It's an interesting combination. You know, musically, he's so strong. And then, of course, Eno's got this whole production thing going on. So between the two of them, they really made something special with that, uh, that record. And those techniques, you know, slowing things down. Or the Daniel Johnson thing, you know, where you've just got what sounds like a kind of cassette recorder with someone physically bashing like a little kind of Casio keyboard in the room. Um, all those things are, you know, interesting, valid kind of approaches to film scoring. I mean, they're all things you can take um, and make something um, of interest and something special, you know, with heart, I think. So, uh, so yeah. And it gives you that ability to improvise and, and have to think in a dime because obviously when you're in an edit, things can change and suddenly, you know, you, you were going down this path and then they recut it and you've got to suddenly go, OK, well, <laughs> back to this, back to square one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah, that that can happen. That is that is true. You know, I mean, it, I, I suppose a lot of it depends on your. Um, well, it, you know, it depends on many many things. But you, that's that's I suppose a kind of. Um, there, there has to be an attitude there. Um, you can. There are times to to fight battles, but there are also times, and I always try to keep a, a really open mind. Um, it's easy just to to feel kind of. Um, you know, offended by the by somebody's decision to just get rid of a piece of music that you absolutely love. But I think it's important to keep an open mind because you never know. You know, if you can genuinely go into a new new approach with a good heart and try it, quite often you just find something that you think, actually, this is great. You know, I really, really enjoy this as well. So there are many ways to skin a cat, I think, uh, musically. Indeed, indeed. Um, and then we're going to... The wonderful specials. I love ska music. And I, I, is there a story to this or is it just that you love it? 
Well, you know, I mean, I'm from Coventry, so they were our band. Um, and uh, and for me, you know, I I had this single. I bought it before they were kind. They really hit the big time. Um, so that made it even more special. I played it to death. Um, I got to see them when I was 15. I sneaked into a. a a gig with with adults quite a heavy atmosphere really at the time you know you had that kind of tension between the specials obviously very much a multicultural kind of band um anti-nazi league kind of supporting band but then you know there was a right-wing element as well that you'd see there so there'd be lots of skinheads and things it was extremely tense and in a way you know it kind of it heightened the the, the atmosphere there um and then you know they're just they're just amazing amazing energy amazing musicians um and um so this doesn't particularly relate to film scoring but um, but i love this track and uh, i love the band as well Is it true? Maybe this is just a wiki fiction, but um, this song was inspired by a fracas that happened when they were on tour with The Clash and they were in a hotel room somewhere in France and The Clash had trashed it, uh, but the specials got the blame. Did you hear that story? Uh, I I have heard that, yeah. And I mean, obviously, Bernie Rhodes managed The Clash, you know, and, and managed the specials briefly as well. So I guess there's that um, that connection there. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that may well may well be it. I mean, such a talented bunch of people, really, you know, Jerry Dammers and Terry Hall. And uh, and actually, I'd said before that track started that, um, that it wasn't connected to film scoring, but I just realised, uh, remembered while I was listening to it, that um, the, the score that I've just finished, uh, which is for a comedy, uh, a US comedy that I've worked on I have used some kind of uh, sort of Linville Golding Neville Staples Terry Hall kind of oh kind of vocals you know a bit like the Fun Boy 3 um, I have used those things and actually when you listen to them I, I can certainly hear that connection so I suppose that's uh, you know you'll you'll find inspiration in the in the strangest places exactly and I defy anybody not to dance when you listen to that song it's such a such a great track and you make me feel by Sylvester this is going to be the last one in the the section of your selections and this relates because we spoke uh, a couple of days ago about this is is this relating to uh, an upcoming project you're working on it it is uh, well you know I, I i picked it as well because i just thought this is a really uplifting track and um at the moment you know don't we all need a bit of a bit of that you know don't we all need to to stick something like this on really loud and just jump around um and so it's it's a great sounding track i remember seeing him live in about 1984 something like that maybe it's a little bit earlier than that uh, and he was great a uh, great performer um and yeah i mean i I have a, a film project in the pipeline, um, which is um, which is about Elizabeth Taylor, and it's set in the mid '80s um, on the west coast of America, um, and and her it's it's about her and her relationship with her assistant, um, who was a gay man, um, and um, I, I don't think it gives too much away to say that he he unfortunately contracts AIDS around the beginning of that, that epidemic, and um, so it's 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 centered the. the, the quite a large part of the film is centred around that world. Um, so I've been listening to a lot of, uh, well, actually, gay, gay porn soundtracks um, through a label called Dark Entries, who um, 
who, you know, it's lots of kind of interesting sort of primitive electronic music, really. Um, and uh, and then various other things. Obviously, this is one of one of the tracks, you know, that um, is a little later, but uh, but it's a great, great sound. I'm not sure what this will lead to, but but, you know, very much part of the process is to just open yourself up and perhaps, you know, who knows, you, you abstract out elements of things it's not as though i'm going to be thinking right i need to to copy this song or this sound um but who knows you know there may be there may be a technique that's used in the making of this uh, you know bass drums can be recorded by just tapping microphones for instance in these early recordings um or perhaps it's it's unquantized uh, sequence lines played by hand through an echo, so they're not really machine-like, but they've got lots of soul. So I, I'm not sure, but I mean, I'm just looking at, at that that era of music at the moment, and uh, so yeah, this song's um, sort of part part of all of that. <laughs> Great, Buster. You make me feel. And is there any genre that you haven't worked on that you'd like to, or that you prefer to steer clear of, or is it was it all up for grabs? Uh, well, uh, no. I mean, I, I think it's for me. It's more. It's more about um, the the approach, you know, and the quality of of the writing, um, which might sound a little bit trite, but I mean, you know, you could imagine. Uh, let's say, for instance, you've got a film like Black Swan, um, where you know the perhaps the the obvious way to approach that would be to just kind of drop in pieces of classical music um and you know and perhaps a song who knows what you know and that that could well be it but of course it wasn't it wasn't that wasn't the approach um you know pieces were taken they were converted to midi they were re rejigged kind of using various sounds and manipulated and cut apart and so you know and also it's a very strong very strong script and great great performances so um so it 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 absolutely depends on on the approach and uh, and how open filmmakers are to um letting me um kind of experiment and try interesting kind of approaches to to things um i personally wouldn't want to be doing uh you know for instance a very straight kind of period costume drama uh, that just required um you know a, a very straight orchestral kind of score that that wouldn't be my my thing um but you know having said that i mean for the score to troop zero we were in abbey road recording strings um and they sounded absolutely beautiful and very very powerful you know so but they are mixed with electronics and and all sorts of warped instruments um so so really that you know that's it but um but no i mean i'm you know i'm i'm very happy to to look at most things um and and find a way in you know find a way and find what whatever's interesting that you can take from that um rather than pastiching things just take elements of it and uh, and see what you can make that's that's new and interesting so yeah that's my uh, that's my take on it but i'll i'll give most things a go and i mean you've been a composer now for a few decades and seen production and sounds change as you and i wondered with tv series for example uh, Peaky Blinders, obvious example, but that's where it is, is set in a period, but they've got contemporary Nick Cave tracks, etc. And do you, do you think that's informed producers and directors in the last, say, five to ten years to be a bit more open to that idea? Yeah, I would, I would think that's probably true. Um, I mean, 
you know, I guess, I mean, you, you know, you're a music supervisor, you know that, I mean, there'll always be examples of um, kind of songs that are dropped in that go against the grain um, in, in films for effect. Um, but, uh, yeah, Peaky Blinders, uh, I mean, the various people who've worked on it have done, done an excellent, excellent job. Um, and, uh, I mean, Killian Murphy, of course, as well, is quite... A, Integral, I believe he's quite a big part of the sort of music choices in that uh, that series. I mean, he's great as well. If you ever get to listen to his um, six music show, I do. I love it. You're absolutely right. He's just got fantastic musical taste. <laughs> yes, I agree. And he's also very open. I love the fact he's very open, and people send him ideas, and he checks things out, and um, you know, having that open open attitude as as you do also as a composer. But um, I see that time is ticking on, and I want to get to your scores and your music. And the first one that I selected from the group that you sent, I thought we'd like I'd like to start with the Worm because this is an early film, as I believe that you did with um, the directing duo Bert and Bertie. So I'm really interested to know how you met them. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I've been working with them now for 16, 17 years. Um, we've we've worked together on, on everything uh, that they've that they've worked on so far. I've done all their all their work. Um, and um, we started making um, kind of no no budget short films no budget and low budget short films and i i you know like many composers i i made many of those with various people um but looking back the ones that i worked on with them were really quite special right from the beginning that you could see you could just see their talents um and um you know they stand up now those three short films that we made that they're, they're really really great little pieces of work um and it kind of cemented our working relationship you know we just got on they're very open-minded uh very into kind of conceptual art school uh sort of approaches to to things um and um so so yeah so this is this is one of the pieces that uh, i worked on we got this kind of gag between us that pretty much everything I did with them then had whistling on because um, we just didn't have a budget for anything else, you know? So, <laughs> so there'd always be some whistling in there. But um, but on this piece, it actually makes sense because um, it's a kind of a sort of Morricone style piece. Um, and um, so, you know, it kind of, it, it made sense to, uh, to to try that. But if you, if you get a chance to anybody listening to this to check out the Burton Bertie short films, um, find them. I'm sure they're online and uh, they're, they're really enjoyable, really well made. You can just see that these people are going places because they're, uh, they're just so talented right from the off. You know, they arrived kind of fully formed, basically, like Kate Bush or somebody. That's a that's a wild old film. That one you should watch it. I should also say that Bert and Bertie is spelt B E R T B E R T I E for for those of you who are putting in a putting in the old Google. Um, and so yes, you were mentioning this project that you did at Troop Zero, which you are being submitted for an, an Emmy nomination. Yeah. So we're just at the point where. Um... Amazon, it, it's an Amazon Studios film uh, called Troop Zero, uh, which stars Viola Davis um, and Alison Janney, um, set in the sort of mid-70s in the Deep South, um, probably Georgia uh, in the United States. And it's about a little girl who is um, poor. She lives on a trailer park with her dad, um, who's a kind of failed attorney. Um, 
she's obsessed with science and the outer limits and Carl Sagan and um, will go to the library and bring back giant bags of books and pause over them. Um, and in the film, um, the, the Voyager space probe is launched and as, as you probably know, um, they sent up a golden disc with the, the Voyager space probe and in Troop Zero, um, she has the opportunity to get her voice onto that disc. So that's that's kind of... The story hangs around that. I mean, there's more to it than, than that. But I actually started work from the script. It was written by a woman called Lucy Alabar, who had written Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is just a great film. I mean, I just I, I loved that film. Um, and then when I got the script for Troop Zero, Burton Bertie sent it to me. This was probably about two years before shooting began. Um, I just could not believe it. It was, it was fantastic, right from the first draft that I had. Um, and, uh, and then and of course, I desperately wanted to to work on it, and um, and I really just started writing um, from from the script. They they hadn't asked me to, but um, but I felt very inspired by it, and um, and you know I was trying to think of what what could this be, what could musically where where could this this go, and I was kind of thinking, well, you know, it's it's the mid seventies, we're in the deep south, so how about if we combine, um, you know, slide guitars, banjos pedal steel um, choirs with Moog synthesizers and electronics and radio broadcasts and Morse code and all these things. If we put them all together, what would that make? You know, before any notes were written, you sort of think, well, what would that be? Because I don't think I've really heard that before. And um, I'd, I'd just like to know. So, um, so that was the kind of the beginning. And uh, then I just made a little demo on my computer with a few sounds and things of a was trying to find a melodic way into to it and um and actually that very first piece of music really went through the whole film i mean that that melody is is the score i mean there's more to it than that but it's such an important part of it and and when you we've i think today we've got an example of that early demo and then one of the final pieces that use that melody you can just hear it doesn't feel that far removed from that little thing that was recorded in a tiny room um to this thing that was recorded at abbey road that you can you can absolutely feel the connection between them um so um so that was just a beautiful beautiful project to to work on and uh, as you say it's been submitted uh, by amazon studios um for the the score has been submitted for the emmy awards uh, in fact the whole film has the you know directors and the editor and the and the film itself and i believe as well the soundtrack albums also being uh, submitted for the Grammy Awards as well this year. Excellent. So, so it's you know it's it's really great to see that people appreciate it and um, and people have have really uh, been some great positive uh, feedback for the school, which is which is brilliant. Well, let's hear that track, the the original demo that went on to influence the the entire school. wrote this in a, a true a sign of inspiration clearly because you had such a, a strong connection and then it just you, you know you hit it out of the park with with your demo which is really great yeah and and you can hear there's um i mean you know i think this was something that appealed to burton bertie as i said they like me you know they really enjoy this kind of conceptual um element to to the score so you've got that morse code in there and uh in in the script you know there's a, a very important line um that that is you know, when, when they're speaking, they're looking up to the kind of the celestial heavens and uh, this little girl is saying, we are here. You know, she's speaking out to the aliens that are out in the universe hoping to communicate with them. And she just says, 
I am here, we are here, we are here. Um, so I transcribed that phrase um, into Morse code um, and then made it into a musical part. And so even though, you know, I'm, I'm now talking about it, but when you first hear the score, you won't, you won't realise that that Morse code is playing we are here. But I just really like the idea that it's... it's um, it's all connected, you know. It, it's just part of a whole, a whole thing, and uh, and so yeah. So so that's in that very first demo as well. Um, and uh, and I think I think Bert and Bertie liked liked that as well. You know, they felt that it was a good uh, good way to connect the script to the score as well. And we're going to hear what is actually in the film. And do you want to set up the scene as it as it shows? This is kind of the final final cue in the film. It's at night. They're all gathered looking up at the stars and they decide, these, these children and a couple of their parents and things, decide to try to communicate with, with the aliens. Um, they've been through a lot and uh, they want to kind of exclaim that... that they exist you know these are poor kids they've kind of they're they're an underclass um who've been kind of trodden downtrodden there but they've now found this kind of spirit and uh, and they want to express that they are here you know that they exist and that they're important and they're they're kind of shouting that up to the stars so um so yeah that's this i mean there are lots of twists and turns in this scene but um but it builds to the climax and then of course the camera pans out we follow the Voyager space probe as it moves out through the through the universe and up into space, and uh, you know that will be the end of the uh, end of the scene. It's quite quite a dramatic ending to it. that you were so inspired you know you wrote quite a bit of music at script stage um way ahead of them actually getting into production and did that mean that then they were using that in the editing room to cut to very early on yeah um so what happened was i kind of i'd, I'd written a whole bunch of music uh from the script then I went out to New Orleans where they were filming um, the, the film and I was there for three weeks, I think. Um, and that was great. It really helped, you know. I mean, it's it's fairly unusual thing to do, um, but... But I, I had there were some things I needed to do on set. I was kind of coaching some of the actors. Um, there was a song that I'd written that was in the film, and uh, and then also we had a version of Space Oddity, the the Bowie track um, that is part of one of the great great scenes in in the film, and. Um, so I was I was kind of working on that while I was there. Um, it felt a bit like I was in some sort of J.G. Ballard novel where I was just in a hotel room doing endless versions of Space Oddity in some weird abstract kind of world. But, um, but I, I mean, it was great to be there with the directors. I mean, it's amazing to see them on set as well. I mean, they're just just fantastic, br- brilliant to, to see them working like that. And, um, and then we could, you know, they, they have hardly any time at all, but the few moments they have, we could kind of talk about music and things. Um, I also got to talk to Lucy Alibar, the writer um and you know interact with the actors and things so so that was really great um and then when i when i came back they were still filming and um i just it was it was quite a nice time really because the editors were compiling a sort of a version of the film and so between us we could just kind of i'd be sort of saying look i've got this idea do you want to try it they drop it in I'd be saying to them, is there anything you feel that you is coming up that you haven't got anything for that needs to be covered? And then I'd do some writing for that. So we had this kind of 
quiet period while the film was still being finished, film-wise, filming-wise, um, where I could just work with with the editors and um, uh, and Kate Haight was the main main editor on the film, and um, and that was you know a really good good thing. So by the time they'd finished filming, we had a lot of music in the film, and and in the end, um, there was there was no temp music for the film at all. And if people know what temp music is, you know quite often films will arrive <coughs> with other scores dropped in just so that people have an idea of mood and tempo and things. But with Troop Zero, there was no temp music in any of it at all. Um, and I think if you can do that, uh, if you have the time to do that and the trust of, of the people you're working with to do that, it is a really great thing because, um, you know, quite often when you hear films that have been scored with strong temp tracks, uh, you can perhaps hear the influence of that temp permeating into the you know the the, the, the final score and uh, so if you can you know if you if you get the opportunity i think it's a really great uh, thing to to avoid but you do have to get in early oh i agree because i also as a music supervisor have this the temp love trap which is when the the editor who often have fantastic taste in music and a huge amount of tracks in their hard drives and they just plug it all in because they're trying to make the the scenes work and and the rhythm and the flow to impress the financiers and producers who are dropping into the cutting and so you get how it happens but then you you arrive and it's like oh we really love this can we try and and like because often you know they've picked a super well-known track that's going to cost a fortune um so yes if i I agree for both a music supervisor and a composer if if we collectively can be brought on early and start sending stuff that you you've created so you don't have to you know deal with a temp track and i know i can actually clear uh, for for the, for the budget it's, it's the better way to go um there's another track here though from um troop zero and i also i love that clip that you sent me the uh about the making of troop zero and it features you can see you in your hotel room and in, in new orleans and how do people get to see that is it on on YouTube? But I've got a very limited YouTube channel. Um, but if you just look for Rob Lord on YouTube, there is a there is a film that Amazon made called Scoring Zero. And it's a behind the scenes kind of... There are interviews with me, with the directors, with producers and actors um, from the film. And uh, and there's some footage of Abbey Road. And it's, you know, it's a really, really lovely piece of piece of film, actually. And uh, it gives you an insight into into how it was uh, how it was put together for, for sure. And how much did you do at Abbey Road? Well, you know, not not an awful lot. I mean, it was just just some strings, really. Um, I don't necessarily need to work at a place like Abbey Road to be recording, you know, slide guitar or whatever. You know, it's uh, I didn't necessarily look for that sound. But in terms of the strings, um, you know, it, it was so beautiful. It was such a beautiful, beautiful session and so emotional. I mean, I the truth is, you know, it might sound a bit corny, but... Um, this that, that main piece of music, uh, you know, we are here from from Troop Zero. Every time I heard it, I, I welled up. It was exhausting, you know, for for months on end. Um, and I, you know, by the end, it was like, oh god, thank god, that's, that's I don't have to listen to it for a while. I'm just exhausted from it. And um, and you know, when we added the strings to it, even more, you know, and the the way we we had the session set up, um, Bert and Bertie were in Los Angeles, and we kind of live streamed the recording to them. Um, and they they were in tears as well. <laughs> 
so we were all kind of like whoa um but that's great you know because you, you hope that if you feel that then other people will feel some of that too and, and i think people have um so um so yeah now that that was that was great so that that whole experience was was amazing really really amazing experience to together and record emotional myself listening to it <laughs> uh, because I too have have uh, had the great fortune to work at Abbey Road and it's not only a special place but we have some of the most fantastic string players and musicians in the world so it's always such a treat yeah 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 no definitely definitely and um, going on to we're almost at the end of the show we've got a couple of more cues this is a book for me so tell us about that um, okay, so this is uh, this is a piece from another film, a film called Writers Retreat, which was a um, it was a, a horror film really that I worked on, um, and I approached the um, producers and um, director and suggested an idea for the beginning of the film. Um, I, I, you know, I have this kind of um, songwriting background as well as being a composer, uh, and quite often I'll get involved in, in writing songs as part of a score for, for a film. It's just a really enjoyable thing to do. Um, and with this piece, which opens the film, um, I came to them and just sort of said, look, how about if lyrically we give away the entire plot of the film right at the start um so it just says everything that's about to happen um but it's done in a kind of poetic way so that you would really have to make an effort to to work out what's what's happening you know the first time you hear a piece of music and a lyric and things you've really got to concentrate if you want to get everything but it was it was just a nice idea you know to to really kind of uh, cheekily present the entire plot of the film in this piece of music. Uh, the vocal is by a woman called Eliza Skelton, who's just got this amazing folk voice. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to to live in a part of the world where there is just such an uh, incredible collection of musicians around here. Uh, so people like Nick Pinn, who's played on many of my scores, Martin Barker. Um, these are just incredible musicians. And um, Eliza Skelton is just, uh, I mean, when you hear her voice, you know, it's just, just amazing. So, so, uh, this worked really really well it's uh yeah it's a really strong opening and, and you know it's a song but um it's it's played in a very kind of musical filmic way i think one fine day my love did right before the passing of her light a book for me a wondrous sight the words they were a true delight. That's a beautiful vocal. In fact, I, I meant to ask you, did you move to Brighton because of the music connection or was it just somewhere you fancied? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd actually, I had moved to France. I moved to Bordeaux um, before. I was, I was in London for a very long time. Uh, then I moved to, to France um, and I had a problem there. I mean, it's great. Bordeaux's a lovely city, um, beautiful place. Um, but I had a problem in terms of... Uh, pool of people to to work with you know it was way more limited um and then um yeah the, the musical thing was very much uh, an important sort of um element in in coming here and also to try some some new you know uh, why why not um and and that's worked out i mean it's a very you know i mean where you are as well is 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 extremely musical uh 
Well, yes. In fact, uh, we we have some strong musical and filmic uh, friend connections. There's Mark Bandola and his wife Margot, and uh, Sylvie Bollioli, who's a filmmaker in her own right, as well as the founder of the film and international television and film festival here. So, yes, it's it's uh, we both have ended up in places that have a strong music connection. No, no surprises there, given our our world. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so let, let tell us a little bit about the cue that we're going to go out on. It's their right to be paranoid. This was a piece from a, a US sci-fi drama that I worked on called uh, Receiver uh, back in 2011, I think. And um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, this this is, I suppose, an example of combining... Um, Acoustic instruments. Um, this was, you know, it's for a particular scene that was set in the desert and things, um, but with all sorts of uh, interesting, odd little kind of random, using random electronic elements. Um, uh, you know, much as I have done, I suppose, uh, you know, sort of ten, 10 years later with uh, with Troop Zero, where you've got a combination of acoustics, uh, stretched time-stretched instruments, um, a choir um, in there, small small choir, but a good, really good-sounding choir, um, a woman's voice as a singer called Michaela Betts who, uh, who was singing through a kind of Fender guitar amplifier that was distorted and through spring reverb. And so you've almost got a kind of guitar solo, but it's a, it's a female voice. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, I think it's a, it's a very atmospheric, uh, atmospheric piece, really, and, uh, and, and really sets the scene and, you know, really situates you in, in exactly the right sort of uh, sort of mood because it was also a sci-fi series so it, it needed to have that kind of um, otherworldly sort of sound to it as well well composer rob lord thanks again for being on soho radio's composers on film thank you and we'll hear right to be paranoid which given the title of the track and the times we're currently living in seems a very apt track to go out on <laughs> <laughs> 